Well, before I lead us into prayer, uh, apparently I need to clear up a matter from last week's sermon. I, I had uh, the occasion to be visiting with one of our younger families this past week, and they said, you know, you didn't address something that was on your outline this last time. And if you remember last time we preached, uh, or I preached, it was from Matthew chapter 14, where I preached on the death of John the Baptist. And uh, apparently I had written down on the line, and, and I did this uh, intentionally because I knew for many of you the joke would be running through your head at that moment, so I just went ahead and acknowledged it in the outline rather than being inappropriate to put it in the sermon of itself, but it was why Baptists don't dance, and of course the answer to that question is because dancing killed the first Baptist. That's where that comes from. So if you're wondering why that was in your outline, there's no other historical reason behind it other than that, but just to acknowledge what I'm sure was going through most people's head during that time. But if you will, let's, let's join together and let's join for prayer as we listen from the Word of God. Lord, let us make the most of these great privileges, these great freedoms that we have. That, Lord, we can sit here and gather together, Lord, without fear, knowing that, that we can listen to your Word and not fear that there would be government forces against you, Lord, that would keep us and prevent us from doing so. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would come with expectation to hear from you, to learn, Lord, how that we can be better citizens, but most of all, Lord, that we can learn how to glorify you, to live in such a way, Lord, that what we just had played for us in our offertory, that when we say let freedom ring, that, Lord, we would truly mean freedom in the proclamation of the gospel so that, Lord, people can be free, that they can make good and wise choices. We are so grateful for the many blessings you've given us. So let us respond now and hear from you. Come with expectation that your Holy Spirit would move and work through your word and allow us, Lord, to grow in Christ. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you don't mind, but I thought since Sunday coincides with the day that we celebrate our nation's independence from Britain, that it'd be appropriate to take a break from Matthew's gospel in order to think theologically about national events. It's right and it's good that we give thanks for the land in which we live. I had all sorts of warnings, though, from my colleagues about preaching patriotism over Christianity, and I am aware that is a danger. But I cannot separate my faith from my patriotism any more than I can separate my faith from being a father or a husband or fulfilling my vocation. My Christianity must always inform my identity, including my citizenship. I'm extremely grateful to be from the United States. And, and as one who has traveled over the world extensively, I have visited countries that are both prosperous and poor, and I would be the first to testify that our situation here in the States is unique. We are by no means perfect, but we are still envied by the world at large for the many blessings that we have. And while we should be patriotic and grateful concerning our land, we should remember that God cares about all the nations of the earth. Job reminds us, he, meaning God, makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. And King David is very clear when he writes in Psalm 9, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. 
Even entire countries and governments shall be held accountable by God, and that includes our own. Now, I would imagine there are few among us here that are policymakers, particularly those that shape the direction of our country. Most of us are limited in our involvement to voting and to lobbying our representatives, and I'm by no means demeaning those rights. The ability to vote and lobby are powerful tools. I've been to many places where their citizens long for such privileges. And as we exercise such rights, we need to think theologically about such things. What would best honor God? How does he want us to think about our national identity? And I hear much frustration from my fellow citizens about America. It seems that no one is pleased these days, whether you're on the right or you're on the left. It seems everyone is discouraged because they are not getting what they want. And perhaps that's the problem in a nutshell, isn't it? We are not getting what we want. There's no regard for what the Lord God wants. I quote one of my seminary professors who taught me, we have become a nation that no longer hungers and thirsts after righteousness, but one that hungers and thirsts for rights. The ability to do what I want to do, to live as I desire to live, and thinking that I make the assumption that my personal happiness is God's greatest desire rather than his own glory. And when I have such a mindset, it's easy to compromise how I should be thinking about the direction of my own nation. So this morning, I want us to look at a biblical example of a nation in distress. I'm hoping we can learn something from the thoughts and the actions of the principal actors here in the story. And I also pray that as we meditate on this event, that it will not only shape your future behavior, but will give you a tremendous hope for your future. So if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. This is found on page 11 of your pew Bible. And from this chapter, we're going to be fronted with a national crisis, a human solution to remedy that situation, the results of that solution, and then the overall outcome as the Almighty worked his will according to his purposes. Now, I'm not going to go in in-depth here. Uh, I'm currently working on Genesis for our next book of the Bible to preach through, so I'm going to be more in-depth then, and there's going to be occasions where you're going to want to know a little bit more, like things like who the angel of the Lord is here in this passage, and it suffices to say just for the moment that this is a message from God. But when you read the first sentence of this story, you might wonder why I say this is a national crisis. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. This is a problem of the highest order. And we need a little background to understand it. So keep a bookmark here and turn back a few pages to Genesis 12. It's probably the very next page of your Bible. It is here that the reader is introduced to God's dealings with Abram. It's Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God had made a great promise to Abram. Specifically here in verse 2, God was going to make him a great nation, make him from this man. And by this, Abram's name would be made great. 
And note here that the promise is particular. All Abram has to do is to have faith and obey by leaving his home as a demonstration that he trusts God. And the words are specific. I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. That is all a promised work of God. Abram doesn't have to do a thing to make this happen other than to believe it. He doesn't have to earn it. It is freely given to him. But there are two problems here that make this promise seem unbelievable. The first is found in the preceding chapter, and it concerns his wife. Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Up to this point in her life, Sarah had not produced a child. The infertility had continued so long that she was considered barren and incapable of children. And the next problem, we see it in chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram was a 75-year-old man. And a little later, we'll discover that Sarai was 10 years younger than him. Now, I do believe that this was an early time in earth's history and that the ravages of sin had not yet taken hold of humanity and that their bodies aged somewhat slower than they would in our present day. But regardless of that, both Abram and Sarai were well past their childbearing years. Every time the idea is presented to them, guess what they do? They laugh. They laugh out loud. And eventually their son will be named Laughter at the incredulity of the idea. But these are the facts as presented in chapter 12. If Abram has faith and believes God, then this 75-year-old man and this 65-year-old barren woman will be given a land and children who would become a great nation. Now much happens after this, but turn to chapter 15. Let me briefly just recap this. It's, it's 10 years later. Abram is prosperous. He's living in the territory that God promised to give to his descendants. In terms of material possessions, he has everything he needs and everything he wants. And yet, there is still this problem of no children. How can there be a nation without the promised child? Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but from your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, a very important verse in the Bible. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. In the next few verses, God formally enters into covenant with Abram. And if you study that section a bit, you will see that God even takes upon himself the ritual of receiving the curse should he fail to keep his promise. And once again, this will be God's doing. It is his work and his power that will provide the seed just like he promised the land. All Abram has to do is believe in the promises of God. The Hebrew is very specific here in verse 4. From Abram's own loins, God will make a great nation from him, one as numerous as the stars. And this is where we see the national crisis in chapter 16. Sarai is 75 years old. Abraham is 85. 
and there is still no child, no baby, no nation, no nation, no promise of blessing. Everything that they had been working for and towards since they left Haran together, without a child, all of their plans were destined to fail, or so they thought. So Sarai proposes a solution to their crisis. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, three things can be inferred from these verses here. Number one, up to this point, Abram and Sarai had assumed that the promise from God would be from their union, that together they should be the ones to produce an heir. And God will affirm that idea in the next chapter, at chapter 17, verse 19. This speaks of the honor of monogamy and God's blessing. But Sarah, I hear, let present circumstances change her mind and eventually her actions from what she held in God's promises. Do you get that? Sarah let the present circumstances around her change her mind about what she knew about God's promise. Number two, Sarah acknowledges that Yahweh is the sovereign creator here. She declares, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. God is the one that brings life into the womb. She fully confesses that is God's doing and his prerogative. And even though she believes the promise of God, she doubts that it can happen in her present circumstances. And the third point is that Sarai's proposition is entirely her own. She didn't go to the Lord in prayer. She had not a vision like Abram in chapter 15, verse 1, where God had spoken to her. But in her human understanding, she sees there is no child. We need a child. Therefore, it's up to us to manufacture a child by our own devices. So she proposes that Abram have a child by her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and then she could adopt the baby as her own. Hence her words, I shall obtain children by her. And next we see how this human solution was utilized. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years, it's how we know that Abram's 85 now. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, note how the narrator here clarifies the roles of each character here. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. As a wife. Like that shouldn't have happened as it violates the one flesh relationship of Genesis 2, 24. And it's interesting to know here that the narrator uses the same verb pattern here in verse 3 as another woman who made a fatal mistake in implementing a human solution. That's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Let me read that to you as you look at the verbs in front of you in verse 3 here. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I don't think it's just a coincidence, nor do I think this is meant to disparage women. Both man and woman were complicit. Each person, like I said earlier, is responsible for their own sin. No one makes you sin. Everyone sins individually according to their own desire. 
And Abram, like Adam, should have stepped up and provided some spiritual leadership and stopped this nonsense. But using human reasoning rather than trusting in God's promise, it seemed in his mind a plausible solution. So now we can see the consequences of acting in their own power rather than faith in God. Verse 4, And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Bold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Fallen human ingenuity will produce fallen human consequences. Always. Fallen human ingenuity will produce fallen human consequences. Always. Hagar gets pregnant, and as such, she gets prideful and resentful of her mistress, and Sarah gets prideful back at her. And once again, we see Abram's lack of spiritual leadership. Sarai mistreats her servant so badly that Hagar tries to run away. By not trusting the Lord and taking matters into their own hands, Abram and Sarai have brought conflict into their home. No one is happy. No one is happy. But there's more. In just a few minutes, I'm going to speak how God steps into the situation that will bring an eventual blessing to the matter. But I want to direct your attention to another unwanted consequence. The baby from, from Abram's and Hagar's union is named Ishmael. And he will also produce a nation like his half-brother Isaac. But unlike the seed of Abraham and Sarai, this one will not be a blessing to others. We read of this in the next verses here. And uh, verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot, or they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. Later we read in chapter 25, how the descendants of Ishmael will become a thorn to Isaac's descendants. Ishmael will have 12 sons who become 12 people groups. Genesis 25 verse 18 says, They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. And he settled over against all his kinsmen. That last phrase means that there was always tension between the two families, despite their common patriarch. Muhammad... The founder of Islam was a descendant of Ishmael. So by acting on their own, Abram and Sarai brought both conflict not only into their home, but also into the lives of the promised generation. But God is not like a man that he should lie and renege on his promises. He steps into the situation to speak to Hagar. He becomes a peacemaker. Just as he promised Abram that through him he would bless others, that promise would extend through Abram to Hagar's child as he becomes the originator of his own nation. The Lord reminds Hagar of her place, and she returns to Sarai's service to raise her child in safety under Abram's tutelage. God promises his protection to her. And like the Hebrew people in Exodus, the Lord saw her affliction, and he cared for her. 
And she responds to his promise here in Genesis 16, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. This is the only example in Near Eastern literature of a woman granting a name to a deity. The only example that we have. She calls the Lord the God who sees me. What a beautiful name. The God who sees me. Don't you want to know that God sees you? That he sees you for who you really are? He knows exactly what you are. Confused, afflicted, sinful, struggling with life decisions. He sees you. He sees you better than any other. And he cares. He cares. He is capable of doing something about your conflicted heart. While there may have been some residual animosity between the two women, we read of no other conflict between them in the book. That's Hagar. But what about Abram and Sarah? Perhaps it would be at this point in the story, we might assume that the promised couple blew it. They ruined it for everyone. Again, God is not a man that he should lie. And he renews his promise again to Abram and Sarai in the next chapter when the situation seems even more dire. Let's read about that. It's 13 years later, and get this. Abraham is now 99 years old. And he and Sarai have yet to produce a child. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. God is so certain of his promise, he changes Abram's name from exalted father to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. And in verse 19, God specifies that Sarah will be the biological mother of this child. And one year later, we read in chapter 21, that at 90 years old, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So let's take a moment to think about how this national crisis was handled and consider what the implications might be for our own. To begin with, I want to be absolutely clear, this, uh, this is no way should you assume that I think the United States has somehow usurped the place of the church to become God's chosen nation. Only those who are in Christ by faith receive the promises of Abraham's seed. And that's regardless of geographic, national identity, or ethnicity. But there are some, some lessons here that we can learn here. First, lesson number one, we must not think that we can somehow help God achieve his purposes apart from his means. To attempt independently to help God accomplish his purposes is what theologians call synergism. And synergism always leads to disaster. 
A common way that we see synergism in the local church is to act like people can save themselves on their own apart from God's work in their hearts. There are people in professional evangelism that do this all the time. They say, well, if I can manipulate the environment emotionally or make you feel guilty, then I can elicit from you a decision for Christ. And as long as you pray the prayer or you raise your hand or stand when no one's looking, then I have achieved God's purpose. One of the churches that I served in East Tennessee, it was reported in the local newspaper of another church, a sister church that was just down the road from us, that they had 103 decisions from Christ at Vacation Bible School. 103! Wow! A miracle occurred! Until you talk to one of the workers about what happened. Pastor came in, scared all the kids about hell, and then he said, raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. And like all the children were like... And they escorted them out to a little conference room. And some of the teachers led them in the sinner's prayer. And then they declared over 100 decisions made for Christ. But God always works in the heart through the gospel first. The full gospel. Both the declaration of sin and God's remedy for it must be what changes the heart. And this happens by the Holy Spirit, not on human impulse. And if you jump ahead of that by calling for a decision before that moment, then you are guilty of synergism. And the consequences are dire. I deal with so many people who thought they were Christians only to come out later and realize God never did a work within them in the first place. And morality issues can be the same way. We keep trying to fight spiritual warfare using human weapons. When the Bible teaches very clearly that it's through prayer, through the proclamation of the word and faith in the promises empowered by the Holy Spirit that brings legitimate heart change. But we don't want to change our nation that way, do we? That takes too long. And it makes us feel powerless. Guess what? We are powerless. Paul reminds the Philippians of this in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Any form of synergism of seeking to bypass God's methods will always fail. Second, our motivation must be God and his glory alone then we receive the blessings. We cannot receive this blessing if we are seeking to please our individual selves. We see here in verse 2 Sarah's motivation. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And if you have a good study Bible, then you will see a footnote that's attached to that phrase in Hebrew. It's some wordplay. It literally means that I may be built up by her. Sarah was using Hagar as a surrogate for her own purposes, for her own desires, even if the eventual outcome was that God got his nation through Abraham's biological seed alone. When you live for your selfish desires over God's glory, it will always bring about negative consequences. This is why identity politics is so dangerous. If you would live for God's glory, then we must seek his will within his unchanging word. 
We first find out what he wants, not assume we know it already. And then we repent, allowing the truth to change us. And then we get on our knees and we pray for it. If we do that, I can't speak for other citizens in our nations, but I know that for members of the body of Christ, we will know how to deal with the ills of our nations. Issues like identity and race and oppression and poverty and crime. And the argument always comes back to me after this, Blair, that's, that's fine to say that for us, but the others don't believe like we do, so we must play their dirty game. Must we? Is that what the scriptures tell us to do? I'm convinced the problems with the church and public policy is that we have not, not only because we ask not in prayer, but we also don't even know what we're supposed to ask for these days. When was the last time that you got on your knees and agonized in prayer over the needs of our nation? What we need is more Jesus. Not less Jesus and something else, but more Jesus. More Jesus in the home. More Jesus in the workplace. More Jesus in the voting booth. Jesus in the public arena. Jesus in the midst of persecution. We must act like Jesus is our only hope because he is our only hope. But take heart from our third application. God always wins. God always wins. Let me say that again, church. God always wins. Humans can propose and implement all the solutions they want, but his purposes can never be thwarted. He always gets his way. And that was the case in Genesis 16. God kept his promise. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth became blessed. Kings came from him, but not just any king. But as we've been reading in Matthew chapter 1, King Jesus is a blood descendant of Abraham. He is the true child of the promise. That through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, he can save all to the uttermost. Paul saw this quite clearly. If you will, turn back again to our New Testament passage in Galatians chapter 3. Or you can follow along in your, your worship guide. But this is 973 of our Pew Bible. Remember, Paul's audience were Gentile Christians, not Jews. And they were being told that they had to come under the Old Testament law of Moses first before coming to Christ. But Paul reasons that the fulfillment of the law was Christ. Therefore, to go back to it would be to add to Christ's work. A type of synergism was being taught. Christ's work plus their own efforts. So he writes here in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And he's going to go back to Abraham, saying that the conditions weren't, weren't changed to that. God still keeps his promises. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abram and his offspring, it doesn't say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, and here Paul identifies that offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards, that's after Abraham, that is, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
Now, Paul's getting ready to make the point here that the law was not intended to save, but to show us how sinful we are and how much we need a Savior outside of ourselves. Verse 18, for the inheritance comes by the law. It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, like maybe there's more than one message that's coming through. But it says here, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. To be imprisoned, like we talked about earlier, means the law makes us aware that we're trapped in our sinful selves. There is no good in us. We need to be freed from outside of ourselves. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned till the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Wow. I think I need to read that again. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. A modern day Paul could have added there is neither American nor Chinese nor Russian nor North Korean, for you are all one in Christ. His point was not that we shed our national identity, but that despite our identities, God can save to the uttermost in Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus, God wins. The promise of Abraham has been fulfilled. No matter what Abram and Sarai did, they couldn't blow it because God wins. He gets his way. And no matter how bad your nation gets or runs off the rails, either morally or economically, no matter who is elected, competent or incompetent, we can face tomorrow because we are certain of who holds tomorrow. The battle is over. It has been fought already and God won through Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God always wins. So yes, brothers and sisters, renew your faith in Christ once again. Go back to the word. Remind yourself of God's will. Quit trying to do spiritual battles in the world's ways. Get on your knees. Pray for your leaders once again. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the Lord will raise up wise leaders after his own heart. Pray for hearts and souls of individuals to be transformed by the gospel. Pray that you never give up on the promise of the gospel. Pray for your own boldness. Pray that Jesus may become so enlarged in your heart that you become confident he has won the battle already. 
So yes, you'll hear me say, fight for your country, but do so in the means that God has given you according to his word by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. Trust him in his means. That way, God gets all the glory. You can't say it's part of your own selfishness. And you can't say that you had anything to do with it. You know it came directly from God. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard sometimes to, to live this way. We, we fully confess it, Lord, because we see the sin that's so much around us, that so easily entangles. The sin, Lord, that's so detrimental, not only just to ourselves, but to our children. And we see the propagation of sin as though somehow, Lord, things were different today than they were in Abraham's day. But, Lord, you have promised the remedy of faith in Christ Jesus. That is the remedy to our sin. That is what we are to proclaim, Lord. If we are to let freedom ring, it is to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. To do so, Lord, for your glory. To not try to bypass the means that, Lord, that you have placed before us in your word. And that we trust, Lord, that you will win. And so, Lord, even as the battles around us rage for the sin that happens within our own present circumstances, we pray, Lord, that you remind us that you have already won. You have won in Christ Jesus. And Lord, there is coming a day, a day when we can be confident that all will acknowledge that you are the winner. When every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Lord, even if you call us this day to sit and trust, we pray, Lord, that you would give us that strong faith to know that our King is coming. Our King is coming and that we long for that glorious day. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.